Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And it seems that the left is far more aware than the right when it comes to the law perpetrating what should be understood as crimes, but for whatever reason are not. According to today's guest, there's a good reason for that, as all evidence suggests the police are way more tolerant of the far right than they are of liberals let alone the left. All we have to do is remember the August 2020 civil unrest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, an African-American man who was shot seven times by a Kenosha police officer and became paralyzed from the waist down. Kyle Rittenhouse walked right by the Kenosha police carrying an AR-15 style rifle and into the protests when his actions turned deadly. He then left with arms up, and again, right past police, able to return to his home across the border in Illinois, where he was not arrested or charged for any crime for days. Or remember what happened on January 6th, 2021, less than five months after those killings of left-wing activists. As the violent right-wing crowd entered the U.S. Capitol building in search of elected representatives, they were suddenly confronted by police. This apparently confused the reactionaries who were heard saying to the cops, we're on your side. In a few minutes, we will have the return of scholar, educator, ethnographer, human rights activist, sociologist, artist, postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia University, and award-winning writer, Dr. Michael Goldwartowski, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, American Inquisition Field Notes from the Front Lines, the Government's War on the Left, which was also posted at Salon.com. Back in March, Michael was on to discuss another Tom Dispatch post of his, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner just might kill you, which was about the killing of Tyree Nichols by a Memphis police unit called SCORPION, in all capital letters, as it was an acronym. Michael is a scholar of the far right and left, race and class, policing and protest. His research investigates the intersections of state power and social movements and the politics and policing of immigration. He's the author of the 2015 book, The Occupiers, The Making of the 99% Movement. He's also the author of American Inquisitions, a social history of fascism and anti-fascism in America, which will be published in 2025. Michael has received Harvard's James Gordon Bennett Prize, the New York Times James B. Reston Award, and the Alfred R. Lindsmith Paper Award from the Society for the Study of Social Problems. You can find out more about Michael at mgoldwartofsky.com. Follow Michael on Twitter at mgoldwartofsky. Gold is G-O-U-L-D. Everything else, 
spelled the exact same way it sounds. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, anything new in your neck of the woods, in your world? I was just in uh, your uh, home state of Michigan last weekend for the Lakes of Fire Festival, which is a regional Burning Man event, and it was a lot of fun. That was... um, it was, you know, they have no commerce within it, so people are giving away free food, free drinks. No kidding. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's like, you know, performances, everything is a volunteer base. You pay a, a couple hundred bucks, get in for, if they rent out the campground, the porto potties and stuff like that, but everything else is basically free once you're in it. It's a gift economy, so... uh it's pretty. It's kind of an autonomous zone for four or five days, so it's kind of interesting. And you get out and you go to the store, and like you, at Dominic's, you're thinking like, "I just pick up food and eat it, right?" <laughs> so it's uh, interesting to come back into the real world after uh, after five days of living in an autonomous zone. So yes. where uh, so. Uh, is it like, I mean, you said it was like Burning Man. Do they do a lot of the exact same things where people, uh, like at night, there's a big light show. Do they have an actual Burning Man, anything like that? Yeah, they had uh, Burning Mushroom. So really? you can imagine what people were doing while yeah, they're <laughs> watching that exactly. <laughs> burn. Uh, so, uh, th- yeah, they have light shows and electronic music and stuff like that. Um, so DJs, not like DJs. live bands. Um, you know, there's some, like, Basically, it's people set up camps. So there's some like there was kind of jams, like people set up instruments right. and stuff. So there was some stuff, drumming and stuff like that, but uh, not many live bands. Uh, yeah. So so Lakes of Fire. So where is this? This is Michigan? in Oceana County, which is I guess near Benton Harbor. Oh, really? Yeah. Over by Benton Harbor and St. Joe's. Yes, exactly. Oh. I, my wife taught her class via Skype on Sunday morning after all that. Really? So we went to St. Joe's, uh, yeah, their uh, grocery store, Starbucks slash area to teach a Northwestern class. So. That is a, that is a fascinating area when it comes to racial history yeah. and the segregation between Benton Harbor and. Uh, uh, St. Joe's, very fascinating area, and you're a little bit north of the Indiana border enough to you're almost out of that reach of the Chicago white diaspora that infects mm. places like <laughs> New Buffalo. So you're a little bit out of reach, but not quite. That's very cool. I'm gonna have to look up this. Be- so this has been going on. So, supposedly this been so this has been going on for years, right? I guess uh, yes, 15, 20 years or wow. something. How do I it's... not know about this? I'm <laughs> mad at every one of my friends right now for not telling me about this. It's fun. Uh, it's a lot of uh, nudity and non-sobriety <laughs> that's, going on. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> So what's new by me is hardly as exciting what Dan just talked about. Uh, it's the art show. This is art that accompanies the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party every year. It's up, almost entirely up. It's not open to the public yet because it's not complete, but a lot of it is up. The space outside the interview booth where I'm sitting and right now in the producer's control room where Dan is, the area is currently filled with art for the opening taking place during this Saturday's July 22nd 
This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. Not only will there be an art opening, but we also will host three very eclectic musical acts, as we mentioned earlier this week. And we're going to have a raffle of amazing This Is Hell-related prizes. We just got a whole bunch of stuff from Wild Folk Farm in Maine, and we cannot thank them enough. We'll be announcing what all of the prizes are going to be uh, during tomorrow's show. It all starts again this Saturday, July 22nd at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood between Oakley and Bell. It's the bar with the uh, Bob Dobbs tuk-tuk art installation out front. One of the many great things about having our office and studio in this space is how it suddenly turns into an art gallery. We have been unbelievably fortunate to have a lot of very accomplished artists show their work in the This Is Art show that always accompanies the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. And we have the wonderful animator, collage artist, and mixed media artist Lisa Barcy to thank for that. Thank you, Lisa. It is always truly and deeply appreciated. Following our conversation with Michael on the police war on the left, we'll tell you the artists whose work is appearing in this year's show that opens again during the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party happening this Saturday, July 22nd at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. We got a guest recommendation from Mika, who listens to the show, I believe in Boston. I know he's in Massachusetts. Pretty sure he's in Boston. Mika writes, quote, I am kind of obsessed lately with the business right libertarian propaganda machine and its level of organization, its funding, its ubiquity, etc. It's funny because if those QAnon folks want a conspiracy to believe, well, there is one, and it's waiting for them. Mika then sends a link to the New York Times book review of The Parrot and the Igloo, Climate and the Science of Denial by David Lipsky. According to their publisher's web page, The Parrot and the Igloo explores how anti-science became so virulent in American life through a history of climate denial and its consequences. In 19, and I would just add the whole concept of denialism really has come about with this kind of anti-science approach. In 1956, the New York Times prophesied that once global warming really kicked in, it's 1956, we could see parrots in the Antarctic. In 2010, when science deniers had control of the climate story, Senator James Inhofe and his family built an igloo on the Washington Mall and plunked a sign on top, Al Gore's new home. Honk if you love climate change. With narrative sweep and a superb eye for character, Lipsky unfolds the dramatic narrative of the long, strange march of climate science. The story begins with a tale of three inventors, Edison, George Westinghouse, and Tesla, who made our technological world not knowing what they had set into motion. And I would suggest Edison didn't really give a damn. Then there are the scientists who sounded the alarm once they identified carbon dioxide as the culprit of our warming planet. And we meet the hucksters, zealots, and crackpots who lied about that science and misled the public in ever more dangerous ways. Lipsky traces the evolution of climate denial, exposing how it grew out of early efforts to build a network of untruth about products like aspirin and cigarettes. Featuring an indelible cast of heroes and villains, mavericks and swindlers, the parrot in the igloo delivers a real-life tragic comedy, one that captures the extraordinary dance of science, money, in the American character, which sounds fascinating. While Mika may be, as he says, obsessed with the business right libertarian propaganda machine and its organization funding ubiquity, etc., 
You may have noticed on this show that I'm obsessed with denialism as politics. That is a worldview based on denying reality if it causes discomfort and clashes with predisposed personal political beliefs, like denying climate change or the shortcomings of capitalism, or that neoliberalism is an actual thing, or as Republican U.S. Senator from Alabama Tommy Tuberville recently argued that white supremacy being racist is a matter of opinion, despite that racism being right there in the phrase, white supremacy. You, too, can contact us via email at chuckatthisishell.com, via Facebook, where you can message us or comment on our post at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM us on Twitter or just tweet at us at thisishellradio. Or leave a comment on our Discord or send us your thoughts via Patreon. If you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, and if you do, we will likely share whatever you write on air if, like Mika, you send a guest suggestion and we actually end up having that guest on the show, we will personally thank you during that interview. Dan, more important than any of that, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's the most newsworthy thing that will happen at Saturday's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party? Uh, also coming up, the police war on the left. We will have this week in rotten history. Dan's going to be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and the end of the world that many fear is one ushered in by a police state that uses the law to enforce a certain political philosophy. Legitimizing that enforcement A belief, a movement that supports the installment of a dictator As well as extreme inequality and segregation And the forcible suppression of any and all dissent And imposing those policies violently Even at the end of the barrel of a gun Returning to This Is Hell Is Dr. Michael Goldwartowski Who wrote the Tom Dispatch article American Inquisition Field Notes from the Front Lines The Government's War on the Left You can find out more about Michael at mgoldwartowski.com And follow Michael on Twitter at mgoldwartowski Welcome back to This Is Hell, Michael Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks for having me. You can find our earlier interview with Michael at our website, thisishell.com, and it is free. He was on in the past to talk about his uh, earlier article in March at Tom Dispatch, Welcome to the Predator State, where the scorpions on the corner just might kill you, which is a reference to the killing of Tyree Nichols by a police unit in Memphis called Scorpion. You start by writing, uh, as night fell over the South River Forest, the music festival was in full swing. This is in the Stop Cop City protest. Uh, young and old swayed to the sounds of Suede Cassidy, a two-piece new wave synth pop R&B group from Atlanta, Georgia. Families gathered around the grill. Little ones frolicked in an inflatable bouncy house, bedecked with a banner that read, Stop Cop City. While the band played on, a strike force of Georgia state troopers assembled in the shadows. They were there to clear the way for the creation of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, better known as Cop City, a $90 million training ground for the future of urban warfare. It would destroy more than half of that urban forest for years. The project had faced mounting local opposition, and the festival was, in in essence, a coming-out party for the movement to defend a priceless bit of urban green space from the bulldozer's blade. I mean, these people brought in a freaking 
bouncy house. I, I don't understand. Why did the police even allow them to enter the forest, and especially in this large of a group and with this much infrastructure? I mean, if you're going to have a band playing on a stage and you're going to have a bouncy house and people are bringing their grills and bringing their children, you would think the police would have stopped them from even entering that forest. Did those celebrating have any clue what was about to happen to them? Um, they had no clue and no sign, uh, no warning whatsoever. And um, there was a small army of um, of uh, police from various uh, law enforcement agencies in the region um, and um, some some from the federal government. Um, but the Georgia State Troopers in particular uh, were there for for one reason, one reason only, and that was to clear the way for for Cop City. And in so doing, they kind of illustrated the point that the protesters were making that um that cop city uh was was a threat uh the threat wasn't from children in a bouncy house the threat was um people pointing uh, automatic semi-automatic rifles um at families at uh people who who had no arms on them whatsoever who had no reason um to be arrested and there were over two dozen arrests that night so in your opinion, was this a trap? I mean, it would seem to me that you would be able to stop, like I was saying earlier, this large of a group of people and all the infrastructure needed for this kind of celebration. Do you think the police intentionally allowed them to go inside in order to inflict intimidation, if not violence? Uh, that's entirely possible. Um, and entrapment is one of the favored strategies of the emerging police state that we see in uh, the United States and Atlanta is kind of the front line of that right now. Uh, so it wouldn't it wouldn't be surprising. Um, unfortunately, they've been anything but transparent about um, what's going on on the other side. Um, so we have very little information, um, very little intel um, at the moment about, you know, all of this. It's been held very tightly by the state um, as it continues to prosecute these people for domestic terrorism, uh, quote unquote. So do you think this is an evolution from the anti-protest uh, strategy that we've been seeing now for, I guess, like 20 years of kettling, where the police uh, trap the protesters and do not give them an avenue for retreat, an avenue to evacuate from the violent area? Is this just kettling put up on a larger level? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, been a, uh, another strategy uh, that you know, we've seen here in New York City, I'm sure you've seen in Chicago and, and cities all across the country from the anti-war movement uh, to Black Lives Matter and beyond. Um, kettling has been uh, one of the go-to tactics that um, that police have used to uh, to round up in the streets um, ordinary Americans and um, essentially take them political hostage. Um, and this is something that I've seen personally, uh, just attending protests over the years. Um, and it's something uh, that is now, I think, being institutionalized um, at, on a strategic level uh, by police forces in places like Atlanta. You quote Stop Cop City activist Priscilla Grimm recalling, quote, it was after dark. I was walking to see the concert and I noticed that there was a drone tracking me. The next thing I knew, men started chasing me, and I fell. They had me turn over to my stomach, and there was the red light of the gun sight to the right of my head. It was frightening. Now, this is someone who's just walking to the conference or concert, not at the concert. So this just seems like the combination of what you were talking about, all the uh, entrapment when it comes to a strategy of uh, policing protests, but also 
no warning, massive roundup, disproportionate force. Are these the typical police tactics at what they determine or are told are illegal protests? Entrapment, no warning, massive roundups, and disproportionate force. Yeah, those are the hallmarks of uh, 21st century policing of protest. And um, we see, you know, the makings of uh, what I'm calling a 21st century inquisition um, here with the aims of um, cleansing, purifying, policing the disloyal, punishing uh, the heretical, um, and really disenfranchising people um, who, uh, you know, are exercising their, their rights to protest and to assemble. Um, and these are tactics that are part of a, a part of a larger strategy. Um, and that strategy is is one that you could call inquisitorial. It's a strategy of counterinsurgency that um, has been seen in, in war zones around the world. And it's um, it's taken root here at home. This is the war on terror that the United States inflicted overseas being brought home. We know from past history, we know from historians who have been on our show like Alfred McCoy, we know that uh, back in an interview we did in 2008, that whatever happens in a war overseas ends up being turned on the public at home. Why do you think the public does not see that connection between, you know, uh, the glorifying of drones and how it makes it so Americans are not put, do not put their lives in threats by still, but still can conduct a war? Why don't we see that that if that's happening in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, wherever it was happening in 2008, why don't we recognize that that is going to be something that will be turned on to the citizens of the United States? Yeah, unfortunately, this is um, this is a drum we've had to beat uh, for some time to to bring this to public awareness. Um, but I think there has been growing public awareness since you first saw tanks on the streets of Ferguson um, and uh, sort of militarized. Uh, policing of protests uh, from from Ferguson to Standing Rock to the George Floyd protests uh, three years ago, um, but it's really come come a long way since I first started writing about this in in 2014-15, um, and you know the authoritarian turn that we've seen um, has been enabled by uh, by this militarization. At the same time, it enables the militarization because um, people are are not. Um, People are not made aware that that there are basically tactics that are used in war zones, um, that there are counterinsurgency strategies that are developed for war zones that are being imported into their own towns and cities. And um, I think there's a concerted effort to deny that fact um, and to hide it from the public. Um, and there's there's, you know, to say the least, there's imperfect information that people are dealing with, uh, that people are getting about the activities of their police forces, um, especially we've seen uh, what's called copaganda um, emerge as a as a, a force to be reckoned with uh, since 2020, especially. And um, you know, this is um, one of the one of the ways that neo-fascism has come to other countries around the world uh, has been specifically through the the import of a strategy of counterinsurgency to the homeland. So what's wrong with having a police that are militarized? What happens to the police force? What happens to a society when the police are no longer police, but they're just as armed and as protected and as militarized as any military unit that is fighting overseas? 
So you may recall, um, you know, one of the first responses that the Trump administration had uh, was to try to call in the military. Um, and in fact, the National Guard was mobilized in many places in dozens of cities in 2020, uh, when after George Floyd's murder, people poured into the streets um, to say not one more that Black Lives Matter. Um, and the effect was the same. Uh, the deployment of federal forces, uh, militarized police from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, militarized police from uh, what was called BORTAC, um, these federal federal policing units uh, were were uh, force multipliers for local and state police on the ground. And so the military didn't need to be called out because the police was there to do that job for them with the same kinds of equipment, um, in some cases, the same kinds of uniforms, um, and in some cases, a lack of uniforms. And there were there were just men who looked like they were in uh, militias roving the streets snatching people up in places like Portland and New York um, in unmarked cars. So, you know, they can do things that the military is not even supposed to do in a war zone. Um, they're not bound by the laws of war. And for that same reason, we see uh, quite a bit of, of torture. Uh, we see quite a bit of interrogation um, with violent methods. And uh, we see, you know, some of, the, some of the things that the U.S. military has been finally started to be held accountable for um, since Iraq and Afghanistan, in the public eye, at least, um, if not, you know, in, in uh, legal terms, at least in, in uh, terms of public awareness, we see some of the same things happening domestically and um, that, that are being done to largely black and brown protesters and dissidents of all stripes on the left. You mentioned Priscilla Grimm again and 22 other protesters nabbed that night would go on to be charged with domestic terrorism conduct allegedly intended to intimidate the civilian population or to alter, change, or coerce the policy of the government of the state. Under a Georgia statute originally meant to deter would-be killers in the wake of the Charleston AME massacre, often those who would otherwise oppose anti-terror laws uh, based on some sort of uh, imposition upon our rights, uh, support those same laws when they are applied to those they do believe should be seen as terrorists, their political opponents. To you, why do many not recognize that laws they believe will protect people from terrorist acts will be turned on those who are involved in any political activity? Why do liberals or even those further to the left not recognize that anti-terror laws embolden law enforcement, especially today's military police, and the attacks on political activity. Why do we? Why does even? Why do people even on the left? Why do libertarians on the right? Why do they have these kind of blinders on? Well, that's a very good question, um, and there is a degree of, of false consciousness here, where people think that um, laws are intended uh, to protect them, um, and there is a real fear of right-wing terrorism um, on, you know. <laughs> In many corners of the country, it is it is justified in some way by by the reality of right wing terrorism. And I am a survivor of the Charlottesville attack of 2017. I've seen what terrorism looks like, but you don't see anyone being charged with terrorism in January 6 cases. You don't see anybody being charged with terrorism uh, for plowing a massive steel into a massive crowd of people. Um, those are not the kinds of of uh, offenses that these anti-terror laws are meant to deter or to address. Uh, the anti-terror laws are squarely 
um, that the target is squarely on the left and the target is squarely on um, Muslim, Black, and Brown Americans who are, um, you know, who have been uh, the target of disproportionate force in the streets and are now also the target of uh, the disproportionate use of the law to to call something like being in a forest, trying to defend a forest, domestic terrorism. And um, as for why the right uh, cannot see um, what's going on as, as an infringement, it's because they don't have to deal with it. Um, they're not the ones who have to deal with the consequences of anti-terror laws. Um, you saw the terrorism enhancements uh, was first introduced federally after Oklahoma City, um, but was used primarily against, uh, again, Muslim, black and brown people, not against people like Timothy McVeigh. Um, you saw the, uh, the after the Charleston shooting uh, at the AME church, um, the massacre of, of the black congregation there, uh, you saw the use of domestic terrorism um, against Stop Cop City protesters instead of against the Dylan Roofs of the world. So again, this is a disproportionate um, and um, really, really egregious uh, human rights violation and, and should be a subject of much greater discussion and greater attention than it has been. So do you think there is a belief or an awareness within the right that anti-terror laws are not for them and when they are uh, imposed upon those on the right, that it, to them it's shocking that they don't understand why it's being used against them. Is there a belief and awareness on the right that anti-terror laws are not about the right? Um, I think I think there is a sense. You you mentioned that um, you know on January sixth, um, some of the some of the uh, the the participants in the Capitol siege uh, were uh, trying to you know, trying to call out to the police who were confronting them, saying, we're on your side. And the police might as well have have returned, um, you know, that uh, message and said, we're on your side. Um, but they, they didn't need to. I think the right understands that. Um, and, and you see this with the Blue Lives Matter movement um, and, and other neo-fascist um, kind of formations, that there is a solidarity between uh, those inside of the state and those outside. You saw it with Kyle Rittenhouse, to be sure, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, with the other example you mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And um, I think there is an awareness, otherwise you wouldn't, you, there, there is an awareness that the anti-terror laws are uh, targeted um, and selectively enforced. Um, I think there is some rhetoric that says, well, the U.S. is a police state under Biden because uh, right-wing protesters are facing prosecution for violent acts, but they're not facing terrorism enhancements the way that the left is. Um, and I, I don't think that um, any of that rhetoric really holds up uh, when viewed in light of the reality. So does why does then does that get bipartisan support? You would think that if the left is being overly targeted, then with the Biden administration coming into office, things would drastically change. Why does there seem to be bipartisan support for anti-terror laws that are only being applied to those on the left and not to the same degree as they are being applied to those on the right? Right. So this didn't end with Trump's first term. Uh, Hopefully last term, this this didn't end in 2020 or 2021. Um, and you know, under under the Biden administration, uh, we've seen a doubling down on this strategy. Um, and we've seen um uh, some some Democrats uh banding together with 
with some Republicans to try to advance uh, legislation specifically targeting uh, what they call domestic terrorism. But it only takes a, a cursory glance at, at the ways in which these laws have been used um, in the recent past to see the ways in which they would be used in uh, the near future if, if they were passed. There's also, I should note, uh, laws specifically uh, being brought or bills specifically being brought uh, in the House by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, and this is on the more extreme right side of things, but uh, labeling Antifa a terrorist organization, labeling anti-fascists as by nature um, uh, domestic terrorism, uh, 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 practitioners of domestic terrorism. And um, I think the text is is illuminating. It's it's um, co-signed and, and co-sponsored by some of the uh, very representatives who were involved in January 6th. Um, and uh, it says, whereas the extremist organization Antifa is motivated by communism, anarchism, socialism, and violence, and has continuously demonstrated their commitment to lawlessness and criminal behavior, and then goes through this litany of uh, of protests um, most of them uh, constitutionally protected activity, um, resolved that this conduct of Antifa members or any unlawful conduct performed at an Antifa-affiliated demonstration is deemed to be domestic terrorism, and that the House of Representatives designates Antifa and any other affiliated group or subsidiary of Antifa to be a domestic terrorism organization. Um, and so uh, calling on the Department of Justice to prosecute these crimes of domestic terrorism, end quote. Um, this is this is the model uh, for 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 anti-terror laws in our time. This was just proposed this year, um, and you see, you know, you see a different emphasis and a different um, line of of attack in in the legislation proposed by Democrats. It's not directed specifically against anti-fascists. It's not directed specifically against anti-racists. It's directed broadly against what they call uh, domestic violent extremists. The problem is these federal agencies that are tasked with um, enforcing the law federally um, and that who would be carrying out these laws if they were passed um, specifically are the ones who are who are uh, calling the threat um, the primary threat one from uh, quote anarchist violent violent extremists um, animal rights slash environmental violent extremists abortion related violent extremists um, specifically their their um, targeting pro-choice activists there and um, and other uh, uh, terror threats that they see on the left. And they've been trained to only see those threats as coming from the left. It, it's in accordance with their whole ideology um, and, and it's in, in accordance with uh, their whole strategy um, to only see terrorism as coming from uh, people who are um, against uh, against capital, against the government for reasons having to do with racism and fascism. Um, and uh, they they themselves don't see actual racists and fascists as part of the threat. They um, are invisible to the state as, as uh, when it comes to terror uh, laws and terror law enforcement. The gentleman who was killed in Tacoma, uh, Washington by a police uh, strike force that we'll get into in a little bit, he was the first person who was uh, avowed and announced a pronounced identified, self-identified anti-fascist who had been charged, even, I don't even know if he'd been charged, uh, with uh, homicide in 26 
years. This is the gentleman who uh, he says shot in self-defense and killed a person who was opposed to the protests against the violence that led to the death of uh, George Floyd. Um, So why why is there such an idea here in the United States? Why does the right believe that Antifa is like this army of people who are going to come marching down the street when we've had 26 years, we don't even, there's no certainty that Michael Reinhold actually did kill. I mean, he says he admitted to it, but there's no certainty that he would have been found guilty in a court of law due to self-defense rights that they have within Washington. So uh, why is there this belief that Antifa, which uh, one death in 26 years, maybe, you know, uh, caused not by self-defense. Why is there this belief on the right that Antifa is so violent when it hasn't shown any signs of violence for 26 years? Meanwhile, the far right has shown all sorts of kinds of violence. Why is there this belief that the real danger is an Antifa army that doesn't exist and not the real danger being the far right that has proven it can be deadly and does exist and can be deadly on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, these are these are phantoms of uh, the conservative imagination. Um, they are conjured, um, conjured by by right wing media. They're conjured by um, by people in government, um, such as Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or such as Donald Trump uh, when he was in office. Um, they're conjured by um, federal agents who make a point of um, and this was this was a whistleblower uh, within the DHS. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, um, who made it uh, known to to all of us that um, that they had been discouraged at DHS from um, making any uh, statements about the right about white supremacist violence, even as uh, people were getting gunned down and and people were driving cars into crowds. Um, and um, uh, then De- Deputy Acting uh, Secretary Ken Cuccinelli stated that. Um, the agency needed to quote specifically modify the section on white supremacy in a manner that made the threat appear less severe as well as include information on the prominence of violent quote left-wing groups and they were talking specifically about black lives matter and um antifa uh anti-fascist activists here um i think you know that there's also um an element of um of ideological and psychological warfare where you know if you're uh if you're somebody with fascist sympathies um you you see uh an opposition to to uh to your racism you see opposition to your to your fascist tendencies um you're going to go after that group even if it whether or not it's it's um there's any basis for it in the law whether or not there's any basis for it uh you know which which there's not uh, whether or not there's any basis for it in um, an actual fact to say that this is um, this is an actually existing organization, which it isn't, um, <laughs> you know, there's there's um, this is the stuff of 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 uh, the right's imagination, and I think it's it's been amplified uh, in the media echo chamber to such an extent that people now take it as um, as a truth, um, a kind of you know an unquestionable truth. Um, and you know, conveniently enough for them, um, there are many anti-fascists in this country now. They have created these anti-fascists themselves by by way of of their policies and practices. And so it it has kind of backfired, I think, um, in that it's it's 
grown uh, a, a kind of awareness of the illegitimacy of what these federal agencies are doing and um, of get granted some legitimacy, I think, to um, a largely nonviolent anti-fascist movement in this country. We are speaking with scholar, educator, ethnographer, human rights activist, sociologist, artist, postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia University, and award-winning writer, Dr. Michael Goldwartowski, who wrote the Tom Dispatch article, American Inquisition, Field Notes from the Front Lines of the Government's War on the Left. You can find out more about Michael at mgoldwartowski.com and follow Michael on Twitter at mgoldwartowski. You write that in May 2023... New reporting on FBI activities revealed that the agency had improperly run batch queries of foreign intelligence sources for information on 133 individuals, all of whom were arrested, quote, in connection with the civil unrest and protests in 2020 following the police killing of George Floyd. They were looking for counterterrorism derogatory information on the arrestees, according to recently declassified documents from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. They were also spying on American citizens without any specific potential connections to terrorist-related activity. Why spy on citizens who have no potential connection to terrorist-related activities? Why waste resources pursuing investigations into citizens in the United States who pose no potential threat to the safety or security of the public? Well, for one thing, um, these uh, these agencies have to um, justify their continued existence and continued funding. Um, and to do that in, in times when there, there is a threat, um, from from the right, um, you have to manufacture a threat from the left because uh, if there were uh, a, if they were addressing the threat from the right, um, you know we'd be in a very different uh, place right now and we'd be having a different conversation. But they they haven't done any of that and they don't have any intent to do any of that. All of this, um, all of the batch queries that were run, uh, and to be clear, this was um, what they call a phishing operation. Uh, where they they go searching and see what see what comes up. Um, they didn't even find anything, and, and they they were taken to task by their own intelligence surveillance uh, court, um, intelligence and and foreign intelligence surveillance court. Um, so, you know the the question of of why uh, go after um, you know citizens uh, or you know in some cases a few cases non citizens um, who are you know. Uh, legal residents who are who are here exercising uh, constitutional rights to assemble, uh, to protest, to uh, to to demand a redress of grievances, um, grievances that have to do with the veter- the very agencies we're talking about um, in some cases that have to do with the police, that have to do with uh, the ways that um, intelligence and law enforcement conduct themselves in this country. Um, you know, it was perhaps um, perhaps some people at the agency took it uh, personally. Perhaps um, some people within the institution took it as a as an attack on the institution when the George Floyd protests broke out. Um, but I think one thing is for certain, uh, which is is that they have to uh, they they have to have a reason. Uh, they have to continue finding reasons uh, and manufacturing threats for them to get their funding and for them to get the the revenue that we all pay in uh, f- that that goes uh, increasingly 
towards uh, policing and um, and decreasingly towards human needs. So that sounds like if there isn't fear in the public, then they won't get their resources. So it incent- there's a profit incentive for these agencies to make people believe that they're in far more fear than they actually are. You write that in two particularly egregious cases, U.S. Marshals and their deputies functionally act as judges, juries, and executioners with violent offender task forces fatally shooting two suspects, the aforementioned anti-fascist activist Michael Reinol in Washington and Black Lives Matter advocate Winston Smith in Minnesota on site. Winston Smith, like the protagonist in Orwell's 1984, that really freaked me out. When it comes to Michael Reinol, KOMO News in Seattle posted this story last Thursday, July 13th. A federal lawsuit alleges police in Washington state had no plan other than to use deadly force against a fugitive who was on the run in 2020 after shooting a supporter of a far-right group during clashes between supporters of then-President Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter in the streets of Portland, Oregon. They then quote the lawsuit filed uh, Tuesday, July 11th in the U.S. federal court in Tacoma by the estate of Michael Forrest Reinol. The uh, a lawsuit states the actions of the officers before, during, and after the shooting show that they either had no plan to arrest the man without injury, made no effort to follow such a plan, or planned to use deadly force from the start. Again, as you point out, Reinol was killed by U.S. Marshal Violent Offender Task Forces. And Smith had uh, pleaded guilty to a weapons charge, claiming innocence. He then asked to change his plea, but a judge refused. This led to warrants being out for his arrest and Smith facing four years in prison for violating probation. Smith had not only posted on social media uh, claiming innocence on the gun charges, but he had also shared lots of messages about his support for the protests following the death of George Floyd and the police shooting of Dante Wright, which happened 11 months after the murder of George Floyd. Floyd. Is there any evidence at this time, Michael, that these task forces, as they were defined at that time, are no longer the policy of the U.S. Marshals or that policy has been reformed in any way, that they have either ended or faced and accepted some sort of reform? Uh, There's been neither uh, accountability for uh, what were clearly crimes that, that they committed um in 2020 nor has there been any reform or uh change within the agency um other than the shuffling of personnel um and there is zero evidence uh whatsoever that they have changed their ways uh since 2020 and um you know if if you broaden the lens a little bit um you zoom out a little bit you can also see uh this connected to the the death of um, the murder of uh, manuel teran also known as tortuguita um, in Atlanta, although U.S. Marshals were not directly involved in that, the uh, the federal agencies like the FBI and DHS were. Um, and so there is, you know, it, it's a U.S. Marshals problem, but it's also uh, it's also a national problem with, with with many players involved. You write that in the uh, within the Bush, uh, sorry, Biden administration. That's a mistake I keep making far too often. Uh, <laughs> you write that in the uh, Biden administrations, the White House's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism released in June 2021. The administration pledged to disrupt and deter those who launch attacks in a misguided effort to force change in government policies. 
that they view as unjust, which seems like the point of protest. The First Amendment states, right. Congress shall make no law establish or respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Does the White House's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism violate our right to protest in order to petition the government for a redress of uh, grievances? Is it a criminalization of the public to not only change unjust government policies, but to protest government injustice? Is, isn't this just a complete violation of the First uh, Amendment? Or do they uh, get uh, claim, no, we are not a, a Brit, or, uh, violating the First Amendment because people peaceably to assemble. The people aren't being peaceful, so therefore they have no right to protest. Yeah, I mean, when when you allow the government um, and the government alone um, or in, in partnership with its, uh, its public-private partners, um, when you allow them to define what is peace and what is violence, um, you get a situation where um, any protest they don't like, any protest that is directed against uh, them, against government agencies and, and government conduct, any protest that is um, uh, perhaps a threat to the social and uh, political, politically powerful uh, people in this country, um, or that interferes with interstate commerce, right? Any of that um, is is basically uh, grounds for calling a protest violent. It's it's any interference with uh, with business with um, uh, or any interference with the government uh, and its its activities, even if those activities are unjust. Um, any disruption whatsoever doesn't have to involve. Um, you know anything that anyone would recognize as violent any ordinary person would recognize as violent doesn't have to be uh to involve that uh to, to that violence to be called violent or to be called um even domestic terrorism uh you know the the administration has pursued uh over 300 cases uh dating back to the george floyd protests i'm talking about the biden administration now um and uh, you know we have everyone from from the FBI and DHS uh, to ATF and um, uh, federal prosecutors in the states um, delivering political prisoners um, still to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And um, you know a lot of the offenses that we're talking about are people standing on a highway or people um, you know uh, 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 standing next to a, a burning cop car. Um, and, and it's very specific. They're very specific about this. Um, there doesn't need to be an underlying crime, uh, that's committed to, uh, you know, you don't have to have been the one involved in, in the burning. If you're, um, uh, if there's photo evidence of you, um, or video evidence of, of you in the area and you've made statements in support of Black Lives Matter, you might face, uh, a domestic terrorism charge. You might face a terrorism enhancement, um, as they call them. Um, at the federal level. When you just mentioning about how uh, people would block traffic on expressways, that's been a tactic here in Chicago when it comes to uh, protests against police violence. You mentioned how this is now being seen as an obstacle or interference with commerce, which they say is then illegal because you're interfering with commerce. 
Is that a new charge? Is this something new that protesters have to face, that if they are in some way getting in the way of profits for others, then they are creating a criminal act? Um, so the charge itself, uh, the civil disorder offense in, in U.S. Code uh, 231 dates back to the 60s, um, 1968 specifically, but hasn't been used to this extent um, and has not been used to um, to prosecute uh, federal cases uh, with terrorism enhancements. Um, so this is this is the new uh, the, the new face of uh, authoritarianism in America is, is is one that unfolds at the nexus between um you know uh, state power and profit and um you really see in very naked way the government claiming um all kinds of uh, of of offenses from um you know being an accessory to arson to uh to to blocking uh uh to disrupting or preventing governmental administration um if if it affects uh the operations of business or commerce in the area and basically anything you could say anything is a civil disorder if you're um a federal agent you can say anything is adversely affecting commerce or the as the law says the movement of any article or commodity um and and any anybody who um engages in um any kind of activity such as civil disobedience on a highway, uh, civil disobedience in a, a major uh, commercial thoroughfare or street, um, really any of us who, you know, who, who have participated in, in any kind of uh, disruptive protest where traffic is, is stopped, where commerce is affected, could be in the future subject to, uh, to prosecution along these lines. Um, the 300 plus people who, who are being prosecuted uh, for these kinds of offenses um, since 2020 um, are unfortunately uh, probably the, the test subjects for um, a much larger uh, implementation and a much uh, broader enforcement of this law uh, if, con if current trends continue. So are the number of political prison prisoners in the United States increasing at a rate that is unique from the past? Because as you were just saying, if we look into the future, you know, we might want to think, what can we expect as climate change worsens and the likelihood that protests will proliferate? So are the numbers of political prisoners in the United States increasing at a rate, a rate that is unique from the past? And what does this mean for protests moving into the future, which will likely grow due to climate change? That's a great question. Um, and I would say it's it's unique to my lifetime. Um, you know, I was I was born in the 80s. Um, but, you know, there there have been times in, in U.S. history uh, when we've seen hundreds of people rounded up and and um, thousands of people charged with um, all kinds of offenses for for political activity, uh, you saw that with COINTELPRO, um, the counterintelligence program against uh, the Black Freedom Movement in the 1960s and early 70s. Um, you saw that uh, with the um, uh, the the labor movement in an earlier time as well. But um, we haven't seen anything like this in, in decades in, in terms of these numbers. And, and what makes it especially worrisome um, is the way in which it's bound up with the war on terror. And um, terror or, or the use of the word terrorism, domestic terrorism, the phrase domestic terrorism, um, you know, just being uh, used as, as a catch-all or, or um, you know, as, as a cover 
uh, for for charging people with um, you know with the disruption of 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 commerce that we're talking about. Uh, if if there's a let's say um, you have uh, the the companies involved in climate change or the companies involved in in developing Cop City uh, in Atlanta um, or the companies that were involved in Standing Rock, um, you see you know the the protection of a certain segment of the population, which amounts to less than one percent of the population, at the expense of uh, you know what they used to call the ninety nine percent, and especially at the expense of uh, racial, religious, gender, and sexual minorities. So um, I think you know in this in this era of uh, mounting um, uh, you know near near apocalyptic. Um, levels of of carbon emissions and um also mounting protests um i think it's it's quite likely that this number will continue to grow unless something fundamental changes and unless people uh really become aware of what's going on on a mass level um and you know take it upon themselves to do something about it you also write how in May the House Committee on Homeland Security held a hearing on countering left-wing organized violence at which Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene called for a clampdown on the newest enemy of the state, quote, the movement that wants to use trans terrorism against Americans. You add no mention was made of the very real movement that approves of the use of terror against trans Americans. This is right out of the fascist playbook. Label those who do not agree with your politics as security threats to everyone. Is the current goal of the Republican Party to criminalize dissent from their political views? Is the Biden administration doing anything that could stop another wave of exaggerated, even completely fictitious, imagined fantasies of fear that further emboldens and legitimizes right-wing violence, and this time it's against trans people. Is the Biden administration doing anything that could stop such an exaggerated wave of fear again? Well, to date, uh, to date we haven't seen anything uh, even close to an adequate response um, from uh, Biden or the Democratic Party to uh, to this um, latest chapter in uh, what I'm calling American Inquisitions, and it's not, it's not, you know, unique to uh, to to this particular uh, moment in time. Uh, the Republicans have been and the far right have been beating this drum for a long time, but um, you know, it's as they face um, as as they're starting to face mass dissent and as they're starting to face significant resistance. Um, and and uh, I would say you know a degree of solidarity with the trans community um, from from all kinds of Americans. Um, you know it's it's imperative that they try to criminalize that too. Um, they don't know how to deal with with that, with the opposition or with an opposition at all um, on on the right, and um, they don't take kindly to um, to being told they're wrong um, or to to people coming out and and preventing them from. Um, from carrying out their agenda um, uninterrupted and, and unimpeded, I think they're they're also uh, looking at the elections and they're seeing um, that you know they're not going to necessarily win um, a majority, so they have to um, they have to figure out ways to uh, to win without winning a majority, and um, part of that is targeting minorities. 
Michael, uh, as you know, when our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with Dr. Michael Goldwartowski, who posted uh, a t- Tom Dispatch article recently titled American Inquisition, Field Notes from the Frontiers, the Government's War on the Left. You can find out more about Michael at his website, mgoldwartowski.com, and you can follow Michael on Twitter at M. Goldwartowski. So we always ask each and every one of our guests a question from hell. But Michael, I have like 11 for you. So (laughs) I got to figure out what's the best one here. All right. So considering the fact that even those on the left were working essentially doing surveillance for law enforcement agencies following the January 6th, 2021 Uh, as you call it, the siege of the U.S. Capitol, trying to find people online who participated and then getting those people arrested. And there's those on the right who want to see the same thing done to those on the left, this kind of criminalization of political activity, and then trying to get these people to be labeled as terrorists, or at least trying to get them to be criminalized for what could be constituted as political activity. So I know this is a much larger question, but yeah. does the right and the left, is there bar- bipartisan agreement on the idea that vengeance is justice in the United States? Is the problem that we view vengeance as justice? Well, that's that's certainly um, it certainly is part of the problem. And, and you know, we, we could see that uh, stretching for decades, really, in terms of the um, the use of, of punitive policies and laws um you know targeting uh targeting people um specifically um those engaged in political activity who happen to be uh muslim black or brown or in solidarity with those groups or in solidarity with the queer and trans communities um but also you know this there is something um there is something new here um and part of it might be vengeance and part of it is is perhaps uh, about uh, bringing preemptive or preventive uh, war to the United States, to our own, um, to our own country. Um, They're trying to preempt change. They're trying to prevent uh, transformative uh, justice and um, different forms of justice that, or redistributive justice. Um, You know, they're they're trying to prevent uh, social justice in general and racial justice in particular. Um, And I think that you know the the war on the left has a lot to do with that agenda of um of turning uh yes vengeance turning justice into vengeance and also turning uh the machinery of state against the body politic see i told you i had 11 of these i've got two more for you so uh right. uh during the protests following george floyd's death in your opinion did the police engage in domestic terrorism that is organized and coordinated unlawful use of violence and intimidation especially against civilians in the pursuit of political uh, aims did they engage in terrorism did they engage in rioting uh, po- a police riot it, it were the police acting within the parameters of terrorism in your opinion in reaction to the uh, protests following the murder of George Floyd so if if you define terrorism um, as you know, it's as it's defined um, in the statutes as intimidation, 
or coercion of a civilian population uh, with the intent to uh, uh, to to affect an outcome, a political outcome, um, to to shape it your way, to to make it go your way, uh, then there's no question in my mind that this is uh, an instance of state terror uh, on a continuum. Um, with uh, some of the the instances uh, that we've seen in uh, other countries around the world, uh, where you know people are uh, beaten, brutalized uh, into fear uh, um, and uh, fearing their own government, um, to to being afraid to to go out and protest, uh, to being afraid to to assemble um, or to exercise uh, one's rights, and. You know, this is this is um, this is the age of terror, and there's nothing that exempts a government like ours from engaging in it. Unfortunately, um, there is something that um, could be done to prevent them from engaging in it again, but that would take mass action by lots and lots of people. So, is right now the United States in a forever war domestically here in the states? You know, I think I think we're descending uh, into uh, an era of of civil conflict such as we haven't seen before um, in over a century. Um, right now, it, it is asymmetrical warfare. Uh, it's it's waged overwhelmingly uh, with overwhelming force and overwhelming uh, uh, overwhelmingly asymmetrical resources um, by uh, the government and its private partners. Um, and uh, that includes surveillance companies as well as um, federal, local, and state agencies, uh, um, and uh, and technology companies that are that are cooperating as well. Um, you know, and you have the infrastructure of of uh, a forever war. You have um, you have the the weaponry that would be involved in a forever war. You have uh, the military mindset and ideology that's involved in a forever war. Um, and a lot of that has come home, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just a question of, of whether that war is going to be allowed to continue, whether that war will be allowed to escalate, uh, or whether there will be some limits placed on, on the kind of brutality and barbarity that, um, can be inflicted on a civilian population. Um, and, you know, fortunately, um, uh, it is still possible, I think, to prevent, um, the escalation of that war. Um, but, uh, in order to, to do that, we have to, we have to reckon, have a reckoning with, um, where we are now and, and, you know, and, and we need a general amnesty for, uh, for all of these, uh, political prisoners as well. And, um, a transition, uh, to a, a different regime, a different, uh, way of, uh, way of life, unless we want to be living, um, in a war zone for the rest of our lives. And it's another reminder, too, that we have to end the Patriot Act because as people were warning us back in 2001 and early 2002, the Patriot Act would be turned on all of us and we would be in a constant state of siege from our own law enforcement. Michael, thank you so much for being back on our show. Look for Michael's book in 2025. I'm not holding my breath because I think I'll die by then. So American Inquisitions, A Social History of Fascism and Anti-Fascism in America. Really looking forward to that book, but stay in touch with us. We want to keep having you on the show. This has been a very enlightening conversation. <clears throat> Truly appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day.
Thank you, Chuck. Likewise. Take care. Thank you. All right. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell and talking about talk about an abyss that profound bottomless pit that divides the far right and those even nominally to the left of reactionaries is apparently condoned at all levels of law enforcement allowing for two very different justice systems one's for those whose political beliefs align with that of the police and the other that unjustly punishes anyone who does not share those beliefs if you learned something from our conversation with michael and realized yet again this really is hell please show your appreciation jeez ha ah, thank you cough button uh please show your appreciation by com- uh, supporting completely listener supported this is hell and becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. And his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or you can just come to our This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party this weekend. That'd be great. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Helen? Tell us how our listeners are responding so far on uh, Twitter. Let's do Twitter. All right. Uh, um, Our question from Hell is, how, uh, sorry, what's the most newsworthy thing that would happen at Saturday's This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party? Again, I hope nothing newsworthy happens. Because that's the last thing we need. And uh, what we have is uh, actually the others are much more uh, better replied to than Twitter. But we do have uh, one from Ahmad S. Which says, devil themselves shows up and validates each and everyone's feeling by reassuring that this is indeed hell <laughs> okay so that's the only one that we yeah. have on twitter I we did discord that the devil is non-binary <laughs> in that example <laughs> that's a good point uh, so uh but we uh, did discord and patreon yesterday want to share a few Someone, that are on facebook yeah facebook i like this one neil c says paul vallis wanders in gets <laughs> drunk and recites the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> now that's newsworthy. That and is... Neil, if that happens, I'm going to kiss you right on the lips. That would be the greatest <laughs> thing ever. Neil, I hope to see you at the anniversary party. Neil actually came all the way in from Brooklyn a few years ago wow. to join us. So thanks, Neil. And uh, Adam A. says, I might, my, uh, my, sorry. I might make up an appearance that make up threw me off. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't really get that either. But yeah. Adam, I hope to see you. You've been a long-time listener to the show. We really would love to meet you. And uh, John T., a seagull will steal a hot dog from someone. <laughs> a morning show might put in, in a Those Darn Birds segment. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and uh, Tom G. says, All of the change collected in Carrie's Lounge wishing well ends up ends the nation's coin shortage and all of the wishes and capitalism. <laughs> all right, one more from Facebook and okay, then we'll move on. Uh, sorry, uh, and we got... Let's just uh, end with that. All right, let's end with that one. And uh, yeah, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all the merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our Patreon or Discord. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. Dan, what's Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? 
You know, I ju- we just got a new comment on the This Is Hell Facebook, and I think it's newsworthy. All right, so let's hear it. S- SLS writes as nude. Is that nude, the band that's yes. playing? Yeah. Nude begins their set. A vision of noodles shall appear. Lo, it is the flying spaghetti monster, and all are touched by their, their newly appendages. <laughs> wow. SLS. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, something that SLS has donated for the raffle that's absolutely a stunning piece of art. We'll be discussing that tomorrow when we mention when we name off all of our uh, raffle prizes that we will be giving away, or at least all the ones that we've received by the end of tomorrow's show. Okay, so Dan, what is Jeff talking about uh, tomorrow? Jeff quotes Chuck, (laughs) quoting Jeff, and expounds, of course. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, this week in rotten history. On July 17th, 1944, 79 years ago this week, at the Port Chicago Naval Magazine, located in the San Francisco Bay Area, massive amounts of high-powered explosive munitions were being loaded onto U.S. Navy cargo ships bound for the Pacific Theater in World War II. And when there's something explosive in rotten history, it will more than likely explode. Most of the Navy's enlisted men working in the port were African-American, and they reportedly had an antagonistic relationship with their mostly black petty officers and white commanding officers. Who knew hierarchies of competition were problematic? Due to what the Navy viewed as urgent necessity, the men were being put to work in loading ammunition without adequate safety training. Captain Merrill uh, Kinney, commander of the naval port facility, who also lacked experience in munitions loading, was pushing the enlisted men to load the cargo at what even some of his own officers considered a dangerously fast pace. Much of the loading equipment, including power winches, was also intermittently malfunctioning. So no experience in loading how to actually do what they're doing. They don't know what they didn't know what they were doing, essentially. And the equipment was they were doing it with is not dependable. So they decided to do it as fast as possible anyway. Every part of that makes no sense whatsoever. A little after 10 o'clock in the morning, as crews were moving 1,000-pound bombs, submarine depth charges, and other high-powered weapons from boxcars into two docked ships, The port was suddenly ripped apart by a series of explosions that could be seen and heard from miles away. Airborne witnesses described a fireball of flaming debris two to three miles high, and I assume the airborne witnesses were in planes and not in flight due to the explosions. The blast killed 320 people and injured another 390. About two-thirds of the casualties were African American. Congress later awarded the family of each dead Navy man $3,000 in compensation. Though when one U.S. Senator, John Rankin of Mississippi, naturally, learned that most of the dead men had been black, he demanded the amount amount be reduced to $2,000 because the greatest generation was really racist. The damaged port was quickly repaired and replacement Navy men were rushed in again, most of whom were black, but within a few weeks, more than 300 of the new men refused to work, citing their fear of the unsafe conditions in what would become known as the Port Chicago Mutiny. Fifty of them were court-martialed and imprisoned until well after the end of the war. If you want to know more about the 50 prisoners who were detained, 
until long after the war was over. Check out the 2017 book, The Port Chicago 50, Disaster, Mutiny, and the Fight for Civil Rights by Steve Scheinkin, S-E-S-H-E-I-K-I-N, S-H-E-I-N-K-I-N. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Dan, who's coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. We've got Brazil correspondent Brian Meyer, who has launched a new substack called Delinking Brazil. His first post at the site is titled Bolsa- Bolsonaro. Sorry. Bolsonaro Coalition implodes as tax reform amendment approved. 30-year fight to reform Brazil's Byzantine tax code realized as constitutional amendment uh, we're cut off there. <laughs> no, constitutional amendment uh, undergoes uh, Bolsonarismo. That's my problem. I apologize for that. The This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party is happening Saturday, July 22nd, when doors open at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. If you are taking mass transit, take the West Western bus to Devon, walk a few blocks east, or take the L to the Loyola stop, and then take the Devon bus to Oakley and walk the half block east. The party lasts all day and night, so make a day of it. Every year an art show is that's called This Is Hell accompanies, sorry, This Is Art accompanies the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party. This year, artists contributing their work include Andrew Lar- Larson, Sean Hopp, Margie Lawrence, Laddie Odom, Paloma Treca, Marco Markowitz, Eric Kersamer, Meg Gutman, Sierra Severson, Andre Kasprick, Jimmy Wilnevic, Alonso Galu, Jackie Woke, Nellie Siegel, and of course, Lisa Barsi, who curates the show. Right now, you can see some of their work posted at our Facebook event page for the party, and we'll be sharing more as we get closer to Saturday's celebration. That's This Is Art, which is happening during the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, uh, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>